Hey listeners, thank you for joining me for episode 12 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This podcast is strictly dedicated to the facts and theories surrounding unsolved disappearances. This is done out of respect for the loved ones and of the missing. On the list this week is the state of Idaho. According to worldpopulationreview.com, Idaho has 101 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Idaho true crime. All right, to start the episode, you already know I'm going to give you a podcast recommendation that I love. So this week, I'm talking about world's true crime. And this show is hosted by a couple named Brad and Denise. And I really enjoy this show because even though there's so many true crime podcasts, it's really cool to me how everyone's always doing something different. You know, every time I listen to World's True Crime, they tell stories that I have just never heard anything about. And not only that, they are so detailed with their research. They're very respectful in their delivery. And they also just have awesome chemistry as a couple. So they're really fun to listen to. So I wanted to go ahead and share their trailer with you today. Hello, everyone. My name is Brad. And I'm Denise. And we're from the World's True Crime Podcast. Every week, I give Denise a case to research and study, and we're going to go over it in great detail. We also like to lighten up the episode with a movie trivia at the time of the first murder. And trust me, she's not very good at it. Oh, I suck at it. So if you like to learn about lesser known cases from all over the world... New episodes are dropped every Monday morning. And I find that absolutely perfect for your weekly commute to work. Talk about convenience. So if you're interested in divulging in true crime, join us at the World's True Crime Podcast. And remember, everybody, the world's not always as it seems. No, it's not. So once again, that's World's True Crime. Don't forget to go check them out on any platform you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to head over to Instagram and follow them at World's True Crime. This first case I want to share with you today is eerily similar to the Jennifer Farber Dulos case that I shared in the Connecticut episode. I highly recommend listening to that story because Jennifer still hasn't been found to this day. But this story is about a woman by the name of Rachel Lee Anderson. And Rachel Anderson was born on June 11th, 1969. I couldn't find a lot of background information on Rachel's life, but it is known that at the time of her disappearance, she was a mother of two sons and two daughters and had four grandchildren as well. Rachel had married a man named Charles Capone in September of 2009 but she filed for a divorce only three months later in January of 2010. 
One of Rachel's daughters stated that Charles was an abusive, controlling husband and that Rachel had filed harassment charges against him. In December of 2009, Charles had allegedly choked Rachel and was charged with second-degree assault. I did read he later faced prison time for this, but it wasn't until after she disappeared. Rachel was last seen in Moscow, Idaho on April 16, 2010, when she was 40 years old. Even though she was in Idaho, she actually lived in the 2200 block of Maine in Clarkston, Washington. There are some agency websites that state she went missing from there, but from what I've read, that's not correct. It's also important to note that Rachel had been being stalked for a few months leading up to her disappearance. Now, regarding this stalking case, I was able to find a couple statements made by two of Rachel's daughters that I wanted to share with you. This will give you a clearer picture of what was going on in Rachel's life at the time she disappeared. The first statement was made by her daughter, Amber. She was quoted saying, She was confused, scared, and didn't know who it was. She was afraid for her life. We had many conversations where we were talking about how this could end in her death. There was also a post on Rachel's Facebook page made by her daughter Ashley in 2010 that said the following. The stalking began three months ago with phone calls. At first with the phone calls, no one would respond. The phone calls progressed into music playing in the background that was muffled and no one would speak on the phone. Then she started getting phone calls from various telephone numbers with disguised voices. The disguised voices would tell her what she was doing, what specific lights were on in her home, as if every move she made was being watched. During this time, my mom had the lock to her shed broken off and the back windshield of her vehicle was broken in broad daylight at the parking lot of her employer. She had reported this information to law enforcement as she feared for her life. Multiple police reports were filed, and she was working with a police detective with whom she checked in with every day. On the day that my sister and I reported our mother missing, our mother was supposed to meet with detectives to try and find out who was stalking and harassing her. My mother had also documented information which she was compiling together that is now missing. End quote. At the time she went missing... Rachel was driving a borrowed GMC Yukon that belonged to a friend of Charles. Charles had her car in his shop at this time, and that's actually one of the reasons she was in Idaho so she could check on the status of her car repairs. An Office Depot employee confirmed that she was in the store around 6 p.m. According to court documents, just before 7 p.m., Rachel spoke to Captain Dan Halley, with the Asotan County Sheriff's Office regarding the ongoing stalking case involving Charles. She told him she was heading to tell Charles that she was following through with their divorce. Captain Halley warned her not to contact him in person or confront him, stating that it was possible he could become violent. Unfortunately, Rachel was already at his shop, which is named Palouse Multiple Services. And I had to look up how to pronounce that one. 
I did a quick Google search of this place and it was listed as temporarily closed. Rachel was waiting for Charles outside of the business in the borrowed car she was driving. The last time anyone heard from her was when she contacted one of her previous ex-husbands an hour later, telling him that she needed to talk to him about something. It was stated that this man tried to call her back, but all the calls went straight to voicemail. The call that she made to him was the last outgoing call ever made from her cell phone. Rachel's daughters reported her missing a few days later on Monday, April 19th, when she didn't show up to the pathology lab that she worked at. An extensive search for her was carried out, and on April 21st, the GMC Yukon was found in North Lewiston, Idaho, near a bus stop with her phone and purse inside. When Charles was interviewed, he claimed that Rachel was at his garage on April 16th, but had left with a man named Vince. On April 22nd, a search warrant was executed at the shop where investigators noticed two tarps covering equipment. One of the tarps was noticeably older and had overspray from paint on it, and then the other tarp was a newer green and brown tarp. The investigation later revealed the new tarp had been purchased at a hardware store the day after Rachel had disappeared. A witness reported seeing an older green tarp with overspray on it before April 16th. Charles and his friend David Stone were charged with her murder in April of 2010. In addition to being charged with first-degree murder, Charles was also charged with conspiracy to commit murder failure to notify a coroner or law enforcement officer of a death, and conspiracy to commit failure to notify a coroner or law enforcement officer of a death. David was facing the same charges for aiding Charles in Rachel's murder. According to authorities, David had asked to be taught how to use a backhoe at the Moscow City Maintenance Shop during the first week of April 2010. He told co-workers that he had to help a buddy with a project. They said he even practiced digging a hole before being told that he had to fill it back in. I also read that they said he became very pissed off when they told him to refill it. On April 29th, the Clearwater County Sheriff's Office search and rescue dog handler went with Lewiston police officers to the storage building where the car had been stored. A cadaver dog walked around the Yukon with the handler and gave an indicator on the rear doors of the vehicle. When the doors were opened, the dog jumped inside and laid down in the back of the SUV. The dog's behavior indicated that at some point human remains were inside the rear of the vehicle. In May of 2010, Investigators spoke with another individual named Christopher Porter. He said David had approached him and asked him to kill his wife for $10,000. David also told Christopher that his wife had a large insurance policy at this time. Christopher declined the offer, but in March of 2010, which was a month before Rachel disappeared, David told Christopher that he and Charles had come up with plans to kill each other's wives. The investigators also received a report from the Idaho State Police in May 
that detailed the presence of human blood found on items inside the Yukon. The lab confirmed the presence of both Charles and Rachel's DNA found on the tip of a black latex glove that was found in the vehicle. During a previous search of his truck, a box of latex gloves were found and were a direct match to the glove tip. One of the items seized as evidence was a prescription bottle of Ambien in the shop that belonged to the wife of a man named Robert Bogdan. Robert's wife told investigators that she never gave Charles a bottle of her medication, but had in fact given him one or two pills to help him sleep. Charles later approached Robert and told him police had taken a bottle of his wife's Ambien from the shop. During that meeting, Charles reportedly told Robert that police would only see what they wanted to and that they think I put sleeping pills in her beer. At this point in the investigation, no one had mentioned anything about the possibility of Charles putting any drugs in Rachel's beer. Captain Halley and ATF agent Lance Hart met with Charles in May. During that meeting, Charles said that he would lead detectives to Rachel's body, but only if he would be allowed to stay out of police custody. This request was, of course, denied, and Charles stopped cooperating completely. While in prison over the next few years, Charles spoke with several inmates about Rachel's disappearance. While being held in the Bonner County Jail in May of 2010, he spoke with a man named Joshua Voss about the case. During this conversation, Charles stated that police, quote, think I killed my wife, but I'm not worried because they will never find her body, end quote. After seeing news reports about Rachel's disappearance, Josh reported this conversation to authorities. After serving 33 months in prison for being a felon in possession of a firearm, he was transferred to a Soton County where he had been previously charged with a December 2009 incident where he had attempted to strangle Rachel. In January, an Asotan County Jail inmate reported a series of conversations that he had with Charles in which he admitted he, quote, barely choked Rachel during the 2009 incident. Charles was quoted saying, It wasn't like I was trying to kill the bitch. End quote. And then winked after he made the statement. He then spoke about how he would kill someone. He went into great detail about how he would put them on a big tarp, wait until the blood coagulated, cut the body up, and then dissolve the body parts in a car parts washer. Charles explained to this guy that the temperatures in the washer can reach up to 1,300 degrees. Three years earlier, during the execution of the search warrant on the shop, a car parts washer was seen inside. The inmate also said that Charles got angry at another inmate on another occasion and told that individual, quote, don't make me cut up another body, end quote. A week later, that same inmate said that he had talked about how to bury a body 
describing how you have to make allowances for the body to sink into the ground. Charles talked about how law enforcement had searched the 40 acres around a cabin in St. Marie's, but said that they could search for 50 years and would never find her. When other inmates teased Charles about Rachel's body being found at the cabin, he got up and left the room. This inmate also got up and walked with him and overheard Charles say, I buried the body so deep they'll never find it. Charles later spoke of a story about a book he had read where a girl named Rachel gets drugged and thrown into a lake. He said that was no way to dispose of a body because in the story, the body floated up to the surface of the lake. He said that the night Rachel disappeared, she had shown up with a six-pack of beer and had threatened to turn him in because he was a felon in possession of firearms and he knew that he would go back to prison if he were caught. Charles admitted to putting a sleeping pill in her beer to, quote, shut her up, telling the inmate that he then decided he had no choice but to end it all. In March of 2014, David violated a no-contact order after being released from jail on bond. According to the police report, David called, emailed, and texted his ex-wife. He was required to have no contact with her or his daughter at this time. The no-contact order violation resulted in a misdemeanor and a $5,000 bond was set. A few months later, in September 2014, Charles was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He received an additional 20 years after being found guilty on the counts of failure to report a death to law enforcement and conspiracy for failure to notify law enforcement of a death. David pleaded guilty to not reporting a dead body to the authorities, and he was sentenced to three to seven years in prison with credit for time served. So this guy made a plan with his friend for both of them to kill each other's wives and also helped dispose of Rachel's body, whatever they did with her, but was only sentenced to three to seven years with credit for time served. This is a load of BS. Charles maintained his innocence throughout this period and was quoted in court saying, It's so frustrating to know people weren't telling the truth. And because they weren't getting the answers, they created them. In 2018, his request for a new trial was rejected, and according to his prison records, he remains incarcerated at the Idaho State Correctional Center in Kuna, Idaho. Before I end, I want to let everyone in the Idaho area know that there was an article released in 2016 stating that David was released to Idaho's Region 4. Now, Region 4 includes the areas of Ada, Boise, Valley, and Elmore counties. So this was the last update that I could find on him. I am assuming he is still free because I didn't find anything stating otherwise. And this is a dangerous guy. So be aware that this man, I believe, is still free.
To this day, Rachel's body has never been found. Rachel Anderson was last seen in Moscow, Idaho on April 16, 2010 when she was 40 years old. She was last seen driving a white 1997 GMC Yukon that was later found abandoned. Rachel is a Caucasian female, and at the time of her disappearance, she was 5'4 and weighed around 120 pounds. She has black hair, brown eyes, and pierced ears. She was wearing a ring on her right ring finger that had two opals and a space for a third one. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Rachel Anderson, please contact the Clarkston Police Department at 509-758-1680. There's something incredibly creepy about disappearing from your own home. Your home is supposed to be a safe space, and it's scary when that security is violated. That's exactly what many believe happened in Idaho's coldest case known to date. So I wanted to share the story of Lillian Elizabeth Ritchie. Lillian Ritchie was born on March 30th, 1912. At the time of her disappearance, she was 51 years old and had been widowed a couple years prior when her husband, James Lavelle Ritchie, died on April 26, 1962. An old news clipping stated that he died while driving to California, but it never stated the details of his death. So I'm not sure if it was travel or health-related. The couple had two grown sons at this time named William Eugene Ritchie and Dr. James Ritchie. I am sharing their names because, unfortunately, they have both passed away, James in 2020 and Jean in 2021. Even though her husband had passed away, Lillian was not an isolated person. She had close family, friends, and also a very active social life. She was well-liked and had no known enemies at the time she disappeared. On February 9, 1964, Lillian went out for dinner and drinks at the Ranch Club in Garden City, Idaho. It was stated she was going out with a man who was an old friend. This man has never been publicly named, but it is known that he had traveled from California for a cattle convention that was taking place in Boise at this time. After their night out, the two agreed that this man would use Lillian's car to drive her home to the 300 block of Sherman Avenue in Nampa, Idaho. The man would then drive her car back to his hotel in Boise with the expectation that he would return the car the next morning with a friend who would drive him back. This friend had come to town for the same convention, so as far as I know, they were traveling together, I believe. There were conflicting articles, one stating Lillian offered to take the two men out to breakfast the next morning, and one that said she was going to make them breakfast when they came to drop off the car. So I'm not sure which one of these accounts is accurate. 
A neighbor of Lillian's confirmed that they saw the man drive away from her house, followed by the lights coming on in Lillian's kitchen window. This was around 2 a.m., and Lillian lived alone at this time, so the neighbor assumed it was her that was inside of the house. The next morning, the man she had been with the night before returned to drop off her car. His friend had followed him and arrived to Lillian's in his own car. When they got there, they found the garage door was open. I'm assuming the man probably thought Lillian had left it open for him because this guy pulled in and parked her car for her. The two then went up to the front door and knocked to see if Lillian was ready to go out for breakfast. When no one answered the door, the men checked and found that the door was unlocked. They proceeded to open the door and call out for Lillian. When they still received no answer and it was clear that she wasn't home, the man closed the door and left her a note explaining that he and his friend were going to Harmony Cafe for breakfast and then going to visit a friend named John Yoder afterwards. I even found a picture of the note that they left, so I'll share that on my Instagram for all of you to see. Suspicion wasn't raised until the next day when Lillian didn't show up for her 12 p.m. work shift at Bullock's Jewelry Store. Her co-workers grew even more concerned as the day went on and no one had heard from Lillian. It was very unusual for Lillian to miss work, and even more unusual for her to not at least call. So they reported her missing at 4 p.m. that day. After she was reported missing, the police headed to Lillian's house. When they searched her home, they found the evening wrap she had worn to the club hanging in her closet, but the dress she had worn the night before was missing. All the noted missing items from her home are as follows. A small black evening purse, a green and brown plaid dress, a white coat, another black purse that was larger than the first one, and a book called A Man Named Peter. It didn't appear that anything else had been taken, not even her cosmetics or toiletries. And I don't know if all of you are thinking this too, but I'm really curious as to how they knew this one specific book was missing from her home because I couldn't find anyone that stated a reason behind this or who had given this statement that these items were missing. And I just find that extremely random. Nothing was out of place in the home indicating there had been a struggle. And the only other thing of interest that was found were plane tickets Lillian had bought to visit her son James in Moscow, Idaho. It was reported that she had requested February 12th through the 18th off from work to make this trip. Police searched everything in and around Nampa. They questioned her friends, relatives, and acquaintances, and fingerprinting was also conducted in her home. It was reported that all of the fingerprints that came back from testing belonged to Lillian. If there were any other fingerprints or findings discovered, it was not released to the public. The two men who were at Lillian's house were thoroughly questioned by police and gave their full cooperation. They agreed to both take polygraph tests, which they passed, and their stories checked out and they were both cleared as suspects. 
I also read this is why the police never released their names publicly, because there was never any evidence to suggest that they had anything to do with her disappearance. Web Sleuths went on a mission to figure out who this man was based on the signature he signed on the note he left for Lillian. People speculated his last name could possibly be a few different things, so some people listed Toesley, Tooley, Toesby, or Tooby as possible options based on the signature. People were fairly confident that they had figured out who this man was when they came across a California cattle rancher by the name of Arthur Tooby. His obituary was shared, and it identified him as a member of the Cattlemen's Association, which would have fit with him attending this convention in Boise. So, if this does happen to be the correct man, because we can't know this for sure, just based on some sleuthing digging, okay? There was nothing I could find that could confirm this was in fact the man, but if it was, there was no indication found anywhere in his background of him being anything but an upstanding citizen. From everything I saw, this man specifically was just a normal guy. The neighbor even stated seeing this man drop her off and drive away. So why would this guy circle back when he had every opportunity on the drive to her house to take her? Why would he take her to her home first? That scenario just doesn't make any sense to me. At the time of Lillian's disappearance, there was a construction site a few blocks from her home. Throughout the years, there were theories and rumors that she may have been buried at this construction site. This location is now the Nampa School District office, and in 2018, the property was searched using cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar. After getting indications from both the dogs and radar that a body may be present underground, A three-day excavation was done of this site starting on June 20th, 2018. I read that they tore up the floors in the building after a local flooring company offered to repair the floors for free after search efforts were conducted. Ultimately, they found nothing. No body and no indication a body had ever been there. This makes me wonder what signals they received from the radar and the dogs that made them think that there was a body under there. To this day, no trace of Lillian has ever been found. The police also found nothing to indicate she committed suicide, had been kidnapped, murdered, or left voluntarily. They spent years chasing down whatever rumors or tips came their way and even spoke to a psychic as well as a man who claimed he had invented a machine that could find missing people. This obviously ended with no results, and private detectives hired by her sons also found nothing. The challenge that we have today is that everybody involved in this case is about 100 years old. Most people, I would say, are deceased. End quote. I did want to note that I was pretty impressed with the fact that Lillian disappeared in 1964 
And the police were still actively investigating tips in 2018. Because, I mean, that's something that we don't see a lot, especially in cold cases. In 1967, Lillian's son, Jean, had her declared legally dead. Even though the family is certain that Lillian is no longer alive, they still want to know what happened to her and would like to locate her remains so that she can be laid to rest. Lillian Ritchie was last seen on February 9, 1964, at her home on Sherman Avenue in Nampa, Idaho, when she was 51 years old. She was a Caucasian woman with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was 5 foot 2 and weighed around 118 pounds. She was possibly wearing a black cocktail dress at the time of her disappearance and had a scar on her abdomen and on her neck. She may have used her maiden name, Wolander. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lillian Ritchie, please contact the Nampa Police Department at 208-465-2257. Before I end the episode, I wanted to let you know that I did read the obituaries for her sons from 2020 and 2021. I think it's really cool to note that even though Lillian disappeared, when her sons passed, they had multiple children, grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren. So Lillian helped create an entire lineage of people, which is a really beautiful thing that I'm sad she didn't get to experience. But I hope that we can keep sharing her story, and maybe one day she will be found so that she can be laid to rest with her husband and her sons and her family. That's all I have for episode 12. And you guys already know the drill. Follow me on Instagram, Creme de la Crime Pod. Submit your cases on there, on my website, or at creme de la crime podcast 7 at gmail.com. I also wanted to take a second and thank everyone that has rated and reviewed the show. Some of the comments that some of you have left have been so kind. And I can't thank all of you enough for taking the time out to do that for me. I also wanted to give you a little inside scoop that I'm going to have some really cool bonus episodes coming up within the next couple of months. One bonus episode I'm hoping to have done within the next few weeks. And then following that is a very special case that I've been working on. And I actually have had the privilege of working directly with the daughter of this victim. And I believe this series will probably end up being a three to five part series. And it is a cold case murder and disappearance. So I'm really excited to share this story and get it out there so that hopefully we can get this case reopened and reinvestigated and get some answers for her family. So be on the lookout for that because that should be coming up within the next few months. But I don't want to give too much away. So as always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, 
This is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.